This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, the story of Uber having the renewal of their license for London pulled by British authorities continues to highlight some of the issues that pop up in the world of ride sharing. But not everything is negative. According to new research by the Wharton School's Lindsay Cameron, there are social and cultural benefits that come through the use of these ride sharing services. And Lindsay joins us here in studio. Good to see you. Thank you for coming in. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Uh, I guess let's start with the research and, and what was the backstory behind wanting to look at, at the social and the cultural components uh, of ride sharing? This, so this is a joint project that I did with a uh, Veshnev Kaurswam, who is a doctoral student in the School of Information at Michigan, and Tawana Dillahunt, also at the, a professor at the School of um, Information at Michigan. And we're really interested in telling a story about some of the more positive things that happen in this industry, because so often what we hear in the news and the media you know, are negative. And not only just focus on the positive, so there's social and cultural capital accumulation, but also what could transportation companies, what could legislation, what could technology do to sort of move things forward? If we're already seeing these sort of like natural things happening in the field, what would amplify that? So that was our underlying motivation. So, so how do you define or what components are make up the social side, but also make up the cultural side? So social capital is more about the a group of individuals and how they can sort of exchange resources with another. And there are whole different types of inf- like types of resources that can be exchanged. There can be information, like maybe I had somebody throw up in my car and I need to get information about how I can get the car clean. There's more instrumental information that can be passed. Maybe like I've got a dash cam in my car and like I want to sell it to somebody else and like get a profit. Another type of resource is emotional, like emotional support. Uh, there's a story in my data about a woman who came out as a lesbian to her her driver and he actually pulled over the car and like counseled her and then just companionship being friends these are all sort of social resources that can happen in the backseat of a car now in contrast cultural capital this actually this idea comes from Pierre Bourdieu who is quite a famous uh, French sociologist and this is more about like it's harder to put your fingers around but it's like the intangible things that happen um, in your community Hmm. so like being aware of arts events or knowing the right person to go to to get a job so these are examples of cultural capital and some of the ways we saw them in the study was like, um, you know, a driver, like seeing new parts of the neighborhood. And so one of the, the social and cultural capital, why they're important, they're not just feel good things. But they definitely have ties to economic value. They help people feel jo- find jobs, feel more comfortable in their community, and it affects their performance. So how aware are companies like Uber and Lyft and and other services that are out there, how much are they aware of this potential benefit that is out there for them right now? That's a good question. I can't say. I feel like I think I've heard a little bit maybe in their advertising, like they know these things happen. Because, I mean, when you're getting in your Lyft or an Uber, it's supposed to feel like you're getting into a friend's car. And this is really part of their advertising that all the ride hailing companies use. And that essentially was what social and capital sort of predispose you to do to be more open and make these these connections. So I think these companies definitely know this is a positive benefit of their work beyond, you know, providing income and jobs to people. But it's something that could be touted up even more highly. Were you able to see, in terms of the people that, that you talked with that that are drivers, were you able to see uh, kind of a, a a regularity to these positive benefits that, that came about? I mean, obviously you talked about the, the, the lady who came out as a lesbian to mm-hmm. to her driver, but was there a normalcy to the to these stories as you as you went through your research? 
So I would definitely say more than half, less than maybe 80%. I mean, most drivers have a story. And this the study that I'm actually sharing is not just drivers, uh, social and cultural capital exchange, but also riders, social and capital. So we had both. And I mean, riders always had a story to tell, and most drivers had a story. So, I mean, the, of course, the stories sort of vary in, like, how much support is given. Right. Um, but, you know, everybody's done something to go out of their way or learn something new or, um, from being in this, you know, having this exchange. And, and I would imagine that this gives the potential for the continued growth of these types of industries in comparison to potentially the cab industry, which obviously there's a another few dynamics that are play there. Mm -hmm. Because when you have that, as you said, that feeling of getting into a friend's car. Yeah. You want to have that that usage again and again, correct? Right. You know, I think in our minds, cab companies are much more a transactional relationship. It's purely economic. And often with these ride-hailing companies, it's sort of how they got into their business is making it more relational. And I remember the exact quote I got from one of my drivers who's very relational in his practice says, you know, when I want somebody to get in my car, I want it to be like when I'm taking my cousin's friend you know, to the airport. Right. You're like, you got to be nice to them. And I kind of know you. And there's probably something there for us to explore. Maybe, maybe not somebody who's related <laughs> to you, but a friend of a friend of a friend. That's exactly. a, that type of thing. You did a, a good bit of this research in Detroit. And, yes. and the city of Detroit is unique, I think, from the perspective of the rebuild that it has mm -hmm. been going through in recent years mm -hmm. and just trying to kind of build up probably a better a better perspective on the outside for people that that may be coming to Detroit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this research is actually was drivers and riders only in Detroit. And the reason we did that was to sort of go deep into one context to sort of see all the variations and the facet of it. So it was a go deep approach as opposed to a broad approach. And, you know, Detroit is definitely going through a renaissance. I lived in Detroit in Hamtramck for a while. And one of the examples of cultural capital we see in here is folks will take a, a, a driver, will take a rider to a neighborhood and be like, I've never seen this area of Detroit before. The last time I've been here it was all blighted out. And now it's got homes and gardens and a coffee shop. And so it's a way for sort of drivers to reconnect with their city or even maybe the city of the youth if they, they left during the time of a white flight and sort of see like the city emerging again, like through their own work. And then that in turn turns them into cultural ambassadors. So the next time they get another rider in their car, they can sort of show them the city or they can show their family the cities. So a lot of things like that happen. And then you add in the rating system that, that they have, especially with Uber. Mm -hmm. If you're providing all of these great experiences, mm -hmm. we're kind of in a time where people want to have great experiences in their mm -hmm. life. If you're providing these great experiences, that will end up affecting your your rating on the on the positive side. Exactly, exactly. You know, one of the neat things you've been I've been seeing some of the companies do is there's little like almost conversation starters that you're seeing between that are passed between the rider and driver, like say likes Arab food and into pop music and that can sort of start a conversation in the car and of course that affects ratings but it makes your time in the car much more pleasant so then to a degree there are i guess communities that are kind of being built out of these experiences riders with other riders potentially riders with drivers mm -hmm. and, and i would imagine maybe even drivers with drivers to a degree so the drivers with drivers community you mostly find online so that i call that like the online or the digital water cooler it's on facebook it's on reddit that's where they sort of share all this informational resource about who do i get to clean vomit out of the back of my car <laughs> or who has the best type of insurance you know for me as a driver um 
the driver to riders uh, sort of communities that I see are more almost like one-off or happenstance. But I mean, I have, you know, at least a dozen stories of real friendships forming. Um, you know, they find out they have the same music because you're dropping a rider off at a concert venue. Or one person found a termite inspector for his home. Yeah. And then one driver was actually, um, he was a manager at a plant, and he hired one of the riders as a summer intern. So again, there's these sort <laughs> of, it's the car is sort of this, the, the car is actually a very interesting space. Like it's closed, it's intimate, and you're together for a finite amount of time, but that closeness can sort of spur, you know, a spark that can carry on. So not to put a damper on this, though, but obviously, as I said at the top, uh, the issues with Uber in London right now are, are, are probably, again, and we've seen things pop up with Uber in different parts uh, of exactly. the world over the course of time. Mm-hmm. I would imagine to a degree having something like what we're seeing going on with Uber in London with some of these drivers mm-hmm. and, and, and faking their, their information to make sure that they stay on the roads. It ends up playing as a negative to exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, things that we've seen in London, we've seen in the States, like with Austin, when they wanted to pass more uh, stringent uh, background checks. Um, I mean, ultimately, this gets in. If you don't know who the person is getting in the car, that sort of hinders the trust that you can have in the system. Like That's the way all these systems work, is that the companies vet these, these, these drivers, and that's what makes me feel safe when I get in the car, and they can sort of spark future interactions. And so the fact that you've got all these fake, you know, people who are driving that aren't supposed to be driving in London, I mean, it makes the system feel less safe and less secure for riders. But the the word you just used, trust, is, is obviously very important when you're mm-hmm. talking about this whole process. Mm-hmm. To want to use Uber and to get in somebody's car that you may not know, mm-hmm. you have to have a level of trust. Yes. To want to use that service again a mm-hmm. second time, mm-hmm. you have to have a level of trust. To mm-hmm. want to use the same person again... <laughs> You have to have that level of trust. And and I think maybe that is, to a degree, it's undersold at times Mm. how important that value of trust can be here. Yeah. You know, that's one of the amazing things about the on-demand slash sharing access economy, whatever you want to call it, is is it's normalized these behaviors that before we would never do. Stay in some stranger's house I've never heard of. Come on now. I remember (laughs) that's what I thought the first time I heard of Airbnb. And now look, look at what it's done. The same with like Uber and Lyft. And I mean, all these systems. Systems are based on trust, you know, reputation through the ratings, trust in the platform that it's done its vetting and that the cars are safe. So that I mean, that's the that's the thing that allows these sort of online platforms to flourish. It's still, though, in the end, it, there there is a level of responsibility that the company itself it, it, it's thrown in their lap when these types of incidents do pop up. And that, I think, is a question still that that is in some people's minds waiting for that that proper answer to occur to make sure that all drivers are vetted the way they need to be vetted. And obviously that's the goal. Yeah. But it, it, it's still something that maybe the companies themselves, while they understand that it is important, maybe they don't truly understand because of the trust factor, how important exactly it is. And it's a hard, hard thing to do. I mean, the fact that these are distributed workers that are independent contractors that may have never met an Uber employee in their life. You know, I was a driver. I never met anybody who, you know, was actually working for Uber and Lyft. Um, It's like, how do you create systems in place? I mean, obviously the algorithm is doing a lot of coordination, but there are limits to to what it can do. And I don't know if you're aware of the concept of ghost work that was... um, 
you know, from Mary Gray and Siddharth Suri's book. And there are folks that are sort of in the background that maybe will do a verification check in the morning. So they'll send you a, um, a link if you're coming up as a driver and it says, send me a picture of what you look like today. And then you yeah. take a quick picture. And then in the back, these ghost workers, these almost like algorithmic curators, they're typically um, over in the Far East. Look at the picture you took, compared it to the one that's in your profile and verifies are you the right person so that's one of the ways that that you know uber is trying to be able to keep that trust in play Mm -hmm. um even though they're not physically co-located with these drivers having done this research then is there a natural next step that you want to follow this up with Mm -hmm. you know to take it to the next step yeah, so there are a few different projects that are coming off this because, as, as I was saying, I'm work- I worked on this project with a few other co-authors at Michigan, and I know they're looking at transportation insecurity. I mean, that's one of the things that Detroit, unfortunately, is played with, with, with not having the greatest mass transit system. So how, yeah. what are ways that you can use these apps to allow people to get access to fresh food, to health care, to get to their jobs? Especially for people that, that are in lower income situations, correct? Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's the area where it can be the hardest to get sort of sort of fresh food. And um, research that I'm doing right now is I have a few papers that are around sort of autonomy. So you think the algorithm is really controlling people. Um, and they are to some extent, but then how are they able to express free will and move around the system? Because a lot of people feel like this this work works for them. And then new research that sort of is, is coming off of this is a longitudinal study of tracking workers across a whole type of on-demand companies over time to see, like, how does it play out? Like, do you become an on-demand worker for your career? Do you use it as a springboard to something else in more formal jobs or do you use it for some sort of micro-entrepreneurship? Good to see you again. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Lindsay, you. <laughs> L- Lindsay Cameron from here at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.